0: Turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Last week we started this two-part series through the book of Lamentations. And we titled this series, Lamentations, a book of brokenness and hope. Last week we looked at how God is using this situation in the nation of Israel. He's bringing this situation in the nation of Israel to crush His people. To break Because we cannot have a right relationship with God unless we're broken, unless we're needy. Roof off, walls down. But this is not just a book of brokenness. This is a book of hope. God does not just want his people to be broken. He wants his people to be characterized by a living hope. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1 says, that God has given us a living hope. And we see this in the book of Lamentations last week. In Lamentations chapter 2, we saw that as the people were broken, they called out to God. And they said, God, we're putting our hope in you to rescue us and to save us. And now what we have in chapter 3 is really the climax of the book. In Hebrew writing, many times, they would put the climax or the main point in the middle of the verse or the middle of the paragraph or in the middle of the entire book. And everything around it just kind of builds up to that middle point. And I believe that Lamentations chapter 3 is really the climax of this entire book. You have brokenness and you have sorrow on both sides of this chapter. But in the middle of this book, the tent peg of this book, is an everlasting, living hope. I believe God wants us, in the middle of this time of suffering, to be a people of hope. Let me tell you something about the book of Lamentations that I didn't get to get to. Last week. Um, the Book of Lamentations is made up of five poems. We have it in our Bibles as five chapters, but the, the original Hebrew, notice that these were five separate poems. And each one of these poems is an acrostic. It's built around um, the Hebrew alphabet. Actually, that's a lie. The first four poems are an acrostic, but all five are built around the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and what an acrostic is, you know, it's an acrostic like scuba. Scuba is an acrostic. It means self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Each one of those letters has a little phrase that goes with it. Well, the each of the first four chapters of the book of Lamentations is broken up into either 22 verses or 22 sections of verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse or each section of verses begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So each one goes from the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet to the last one of the Hebrew alphabet. And your Bibles may have that indicated somewhere in there. uh, Scholars say there are several reasons for this, First, they say it may have helped them memorize the poems. That makes sense. Like if you, if you know this verse starts with A, what does the next one start with? B. So if you get stuck, you know, okay, well, I know it starts with B, so then I move to the next one. But most scholars believe there's a deeper meaning to it than that. The Hebrew alphabet, when it was written out in totality to the Hebrews, it represented a completeness. It represented, and when all 22 letters were present, it represented that something was complete. And we do the same thing. If I tell you I'm going to cover this from A to Z, when I tell you that I'm going to cover this from A to Z, what do I mean? I'm going to completely cover it. And this is what's happening here. As they're as they're talking in these poems from A to Z, so to speak, their letters are different, but as they go from A to Z, these poems represent a completeness. On the one hand, they represent that there is a complete Brokenness here. They are completely broken. They have been broken from A to Z, and their mourning is a complete mourning that is affecting every area of their lives. At the same time, though, the idea of completeness means that there was a beginning to this, and because it is complete, there will be an end. Because these are limited by the Hebrew alphabet, there was an A, there was a time when this began. And there will be a Z. This is limited. It's complete. And there's going to come a point when it runs out. So you see, built into this is this idea of we are completely broken, but at the same time, this is not going to be forever. Our God is going to work on our behalf. Our God is going to rescue us. And so we are a broken people, but we are also a people of hope. And this is represented in chapter 3. Excuse me. This is represented in chapter 3 in the idea of we are hoping and we are waiting on the Lord. So I just want to read a portion of this chapter two to you. We're going to read from, verses six, from verse 16 to verse 42. Verse 16 to verse 42. And it's a longer section, but we're going to go through as quick as we can. And, but I, want, I don't want to miss anything, so we're going to do our best, okay? So verse 16 said, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Here we have in chapter 3, the tent peg, the climax of this book, where the people of God, because of who God is, they are choosing to hope in him. This chapter is different from the other chapters because it's written, it seems to be written from the perspective of one individual. Whether this is, whether this is Jeremiah, um, the prophet, we, we don't know exactly who this is. But this one individual is choosing, because of who God is, in this brokenness to hope in the Lord and to wait on the Lord. God is calling us in this moment of weirdness. In this moment of suffering, in this moment of uncertainty in 2020, he is calling us to be people who hope in him and who wait on him. God is calling us to be a people who hope in him and who wait on him. What I want us to do in this, cha- in this chapter, in these verses, is to look at three ways that God wants us to wait on him. To hope in him and to wait him. What does it look like to wait on the Lord? Number one, if we are waiting on the Lord, it means we see God clearly. To wait on the Lord means that we see God clearly. 22 through 24 are really the, the, probably the most famous verses in the book of Lamentations. You see there in verse 23, it says, Your mercies are new every morning. Made famous by the song, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. By the newer song, uh, His mercy is more, which I tagged in, uh, in, in the videos that I sent you. But these verses represent a clear vision of who God is. Notice what's happening in the verses before verse 22. In verses 16, 17, and 18, the the author of Lamentations, the poet, has given up all hope. He has no happiness. He has no endurance. He has no peace. He has no hope. He's completely given up. But then it says in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And then in verses 22, 23, and 24, he talks about who God really is. And he goes from being hopeless to having hope because he sees God clearly. What does he say about God in verses 22, 23, and 24? Look at verse 22. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord is not just talking about how God feels about his people. It's talking about how God acts toward his people all throughout the Old Testament. The steadfast love of the Lord is the faithfulness of God to his people. It's the commitment that he's made to give himself to them. And what the author of Lamentations is realizing in verse 22, as he's thinking about who God is and meditating on the person of God, he realizes that this is not a God who commits himself and then pulls out of that commitment. This is not a God who gives steadfast love and then takes away. No, this is a God, an infinite God of infinite faithfulness. And his steadfast love never ceases. We cannot get to the end of it. We cannot outrun it. It is always before us and it is always given to his people. And then he talks about the mercy of God. He said his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The mercy of God is the compassion of God. It's when he sees his people in ruin, whether they're slaves or whether they've been handed over to an enemy, Um, even when they're being punished for their own sins. When God sees his people hurting and he has mercy on them, it means that his heart is heavy with compassion for them and he works on their behalf. And as this author of Lamentations is thinking about who God is, he says, God, you've always been merciful to us. No matter what situation we found ourselves in, you are merciful over and over and over again. He says his mercies are new every morning. Every time the sun comes up, the mercy of God is being poured out on us. It's just unceasing over and over and over again. He sees God clearly. He really believes in the steadfast love and the mercy of God. And look what that does in verse 24. It changes his heart. He says... I've given up hope, but now look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will wait in, I will hope in him. When he sees God clearly, all of a sudden, his entire, his his heart condition, his, his mental condition, it changes. God is my portion. And I will hope in him. He sees God clearly and therefore hope is born in his heart in the middle of despair. I want to see God like this. I just want to be honest with you right now. I don't have a really fancy way to say this, but I want to see God like this. I want us, I want my family to really see God like this. I want our church family to see God like this. I want us to see the steadfast love of the Lord, and I want us to see the mercy of the Lord toward His people, and I want us to believe it so deeply that we anchor our lives in it. And when life starts falling apart, we, we're not serving God because we're legalistic and we're scared of what's going to happen if we don't. We don't serve God in some kind of license where uh, we say, oh, yeah, yeah, God loves me, but I can do whatever I want. No, we see the love and the mercy of God, and it changes our hearts. I want us to see God like this. And the beautiful thing about that is that God wants to be seen, He wants to be known. He wants us to know how much He loves us. He wants us to know His mercies. He's not hiding. As, as a matter of fact, when you look at this chapter, um, God is the one who has put this author in this position where he sees God for who he really is. And the first uh, and, and this is part of the mercy of God. I want you to see this. Um, the, the mercy of God does whatever it takes to to strip away the false beliefs we might have about Him and to anchor us on the truth of who He is. Verses 1-18 through 18 show us that God is willing to completely tear us down if that's what it takes to focus our eyes on Him because He wants to be known. We read the last part of this, but if you go back maybe sometime this afternoon and read verses one through. Fifteen. You see that he personifies God as being his enemy. He says that the hand of God is against me again and again the whole day long. He says God is like one who's built a maze around me. And I'm trying to find freedom and I'm trying to get out. But everywhere I go, God hems me in and he blocks my way and he forces me deeper and deeper into this despair. He's taking everything away from me. He says God is like a wild beast that savagely tears me apart waits on me hides and then when he sees me pounces on me and tears me apart he says God is like a hunter that skillfully tracks me and then he takes his bow and he shoots the perfect shot into my kidneys and he says it takes me out God has done this to me over and over and over again but this is what I want you to see God again we said this last week God has crushed the author here in Lamentations. But the reason he has crushed him is so that he would see God for who he really is. As a Jew, I I just believe this. I I believe that he had built his life on a shallow understanding of who God was. I believe that he had a cheap sense of assurance that was built on, we said this last week, on his national identity or on the temple or on the fact that they had priests and prophets on their king, they had based it on all these cheap things, but they really didn't know who God was. So what is God doing in this moment? He's tearing down everything that they had placed their hope in. And in that moment, he's forcing the author of Lamentations to wrestle with these theological questions. And as he wrestles with these theological questions, he's realizing that everything that he thought he could hope in Doesn't really hold water. And in that moment, as he's wrestling with these questions, as he's wrestling with God, just like Jacob on the side of the river, for the first time, he sees God for who he is. You see, God is willing to hunt us down and to tear down our lives because he wants to be known by us. And he will strip away every false foundation that we have until we rest on the solid foundation of who he is. When we lived in New Orleans, Uh, One of the first things that they told us when we moved to the seminary, they said, good news, they're going to be building a Walmart right across the street. And if you know Walmart in New Orleans, it's not a great place to be, but it was good to know that we were going to have a a Walmart right across the street from the seminary. Um, So they started building the Walmart shortly after we got there. And I, I remember they were building it right across the street from the Student Life Center. So I would go to the Student Life Center, and they were beginning construction, but Um, I I don't know if you know this, construction in New Orleans is different from construction in North Mississippi. Uh, As they were doing that construction, uh, I looked over there, and day after day after day, I didn't see anything being built. I didn't see any foundation being laid. All I heard day after day was boom, 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 this pounding over and over and over again. For day after day, week after week, boom, boom. And finally, I asked one of the people who were there from New Orleans, I said, what are they doing? Are they not going to build that building? What are they doing? They said, yeah, they have to build that building. But true, here in New Orleans, we are under sea level. And under sea level, uh, they said that the, that the soil shifts because it's unsteady. And if we try to build this building on top of this shifting soil, then what's going to happen is in a few years that soil is going to shift, the foundation is going to shift, and the building is going to be ruined just in a matter of years. So what they have to do is they have to take these pilings, which are these huge poles, and they have to drive these poles down in the ground, boom, 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 over and over and over again until they have enough of these poles that will hold it steady, and then they will pour the foundation on top of that. Because if they didn't, listen to this, if they didn't, then they would build this thing on a shifting foundation that would not hold up over the course of time. I believe what God is doing in the book of Lamentations is he is bringing them a storm that is showing them that their life has been built on shifting soil. And what he's doing through their suffering is he's forcing them to dive down deep to wrestle with theological questions like they've never wrestled with theological questions before. And in his mercy... He's sending a storm that is showing them that their house has been built on sand, and he's showing them for the first time just how sturdy the rock is. I believe right now, as we're facing coronavirus, as things that we want to do, we're not being able to do those things, as things that we don't want are being introduced into our life, I believe that God is giving us the opportunity to examine the things that we've built our life on. And he's giving us an opportunity to press down deep into who he is like never before. And I pray that God uses this in my life. I pray he uses it in your life to seek out his nature and to know him because he wants to be known. And he is willing to crush us, to show us the weakness of these different foundations so that we can know him for who he truly is. That's what he's doing here. He had taken this guy to a point of hopelessness so that he could see that God is the only one worth putting his hope in. Do we see God clearly? Do we see God clearly? To the point where our heart is saying, you are my portion. If not, now's a great time to seek him. So to wait on the Lord means that we see God clearly. Secondly, to wait on the Lord means that we trust God completely. To wait on the Lord means that in the middle of our suffering. We see God clearly, and that keeps us anchored in who He is. But secondly, we trust God completely. Look what he says again in verse 24. The Lord is my portion. That's saying that if all I get is the Lord, that's okay with me. If I don't have any land, if I don't have any family, if I have the Lord, if I don't have any money, all I need is the Lord. Let Him be my portion, and that is okay with me. He says, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. I'm not going to seek any other wisdom. I'm not going to seek any other security. I'm not going to seek any other joy. I'm going to set my hope in the Lord. He is my portion. I am trusting Him fully. Again, I see Him for who He is, and that's making me trust in Him completely. We already said last week that uh, the the author of Lamentations, all all five of these poems... They recognize that God is sovereign over this situation. They recognize that God is in control. This suffering is in their life, not by accident, but because God has brought it into their life. So what the, what the author of Lamentations is saying right here is that, God, you are the one who's bringing this situation into my life. And therefore, since you are the one who's in control of my life, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait until you work out your plan in my life. God, I trust you. Bring whatever you want to bring into my life. God, take away whatever you want to take away out of my life. I'm trusting in you. I'm hoping in you. And he represents this over the next few verses, this complete trust. He represents this by talking about a position of submission. Verses 25 through 39 represent, It's a block. And we're not going to go through it line by line. But it represents a position of submission underneath God's sovereignty in their life. Notice what he says about this position. We read it just a second ago. But first off, he, he talks about this position of submission as a position of silence. It's a position of being quiet. To trust in the Lord completely. He pictures it as being silent under the Lord's leadership in his life. Look what he says in verse 26. It says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It says in verse 27, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. To be quiet and to be silent is a sign of submission. Think about this. If a yoke yoke was put on an animal in order to lead that animal, In order to take that animal where you wanted that animal to go. If God has put a yoke on our backs. God has sovereignly placed this situation on our shoulders. That means that he's the one in charge. To have that yoke silently means that we're not raising our voice. To complain about the direction that he's taken us in life. It means that we're not raising our voice in arrogance. Trying to tell God what direction we think he needs to take us. It means that we're not filling up our prayer life with God, I think you should do this, this, and this. No, to receive the yoke in silence means God, you know more than I do. God, you are my portion. You've given me this yoke. And wherever you want to lead me, God, I am submitting my life to wherever you want to lead me. He goes further with this. It's not just in silence, but again, it's a picture of humility. He talks about receiving the yoke. Um, Which is a picture of submitting to someone that's leading you. But then look how he looks at this. Look what it says in verse 29. In verse 29, he says, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. And then verse 30, he says, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let it be filled with insults. This is a position of humble submission. To put your face in the dust. Um, That means, God, I am not going to try to exalt myself. God, you have laid this on me and it has put my face in the dust. That's how broken and that's how lowly I am. But God, you are my portion. I'm not going to try to exalt myself. God, I'm going to wait for you. God, people are slapping me on the face. God, people are insulting me. But God, this is part of your plan for my life. So I'm not going to try to defend myself. I'm not going to try to push my way out of this. God, this is what you're bringing on me. So I'm going to submit to this. I'm going to humble myself. And in your good time, you will bring me out. God, I trust you to rescue me from this when it is your time. This characterized um, the life of David. If you've read the story of David, you know this. David was anointed king, but when he was anointed king, he wasn't made king automatically. Remember this? Saul was king. God had appointed Saul to be king, and Saul hated David. Saul tried to kill David. Multiple times he tried to kill David. So David fled. He fleeted. He fled from Saul. And when he's in the wilderness, if you know the story, there were multiple opportunities that David had to take Saul's life. Think about this. David had been anointed king. Saul was an evil man that was trying to kill him. And he had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. But what did he do? He refused to do it. He refused to raise his hand against uh, this man who was trying to kill him. Why? He says, because I trust in God. In God's timing, he will lower Saul and he will raise me up. And that's exactly what happens in the story. God, I'm submitting to your timeline. I'm humbly submitting to your timeline. I'm not going to raise my voice. We see this later in, in David's life. He's, he's, David does become king, but David's son Absalom tries to take the throne from David. And he takes the city of Jerusalem from David, and he forces David out into the wilderness again. And David is running for his life with all of his men around him. And it says there's this guy who hates David. From the house of Saul, and he starts cursing David, and he's throwing rocks at David, he's insulting David. It's like he's slapping David on the cheek. And all of David's men look at David and they say, David, you want us to take care of this guy? I mean, we can take care of this dude. We're your mighty men. If you want us to, we can take care of it. And David says, No, there may be something unrighteous in me that I Don't know about. This may be happening because God is trying to teach me something. But if it's not, if I am righteous in this, then God will vindicate me. God will restore my name. God will raise me up. So do not lay a hand on this guy. He takes the insults. He takes the curses. And he trusts God to fight for him. That's the picture that he's painting here. If we trust God in the middle of this storm, in the middle of everything falling apart... We take a position of humble submission to God and his plan for our life. We patiently wait for him because we trust him completely. Now what does this mean? What is this telling us we need to do? Does this mean that we just need to do nothing? Like that we just need to be sitting on our couches watching lots of Disney Plus because we trust God. No, what this means is that, is that in our submission, and this is all over scripture when it talks about waiting for the Lord. To wait on the Lord doesn't mean to do nothing. It means to keep our eyes on the Lord and remain steadfast in the purpose that he's given to us because we trust him no matter what's going on around us. See, here's what I see happen. A lot. I see this happen in myself. I see this happen a lot in other Christians. We, when everything is good, when everything is going okay in our lives, we have a sense of religion. We have a sense of godliness. We go to church. We sing the songs. We read our Bibles. But really, and let's be honest, many times our heart loves something else way more than we love Jesus. I don't know about you. This happens to me all the time. But I care about something else way more, whether it's a hobby or whether it's sports or whether it's my career or whether it's um, just being healthy. There's, there's something else that I'm holding on to. But then when suffering comes, it reveals my true heart. Elizabeth Elliot says that suffering is when something that we want is taken away from us or something that we do not want is given to us. You get that picture? Something that we want is taken from us or something that we do not want is given to us. And when that happens, when that something that we want is taken from us, if our heart really loves that thing more than we love Jesus, then what are we going to do? We're not going to remain steadfast in the Lord. We may turn away from God in order to pursue that thing as we see that thing being taken from us. Right now, I can't help but think, I was thinking the other day um, about everything that people are losing in the middle. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their health. People, a lot of seniors in high school are losing their senior year. Athletes are losing an entire season. That they've trained years for. And as those things are being taken away from us, it's easy for us to just go, oh, and to freak out and like start chasing after that thing. And if we do continue to pray, then all that we pray about is, God, please give me that thing. Please give me that thing, right? Or if something bad is brought into our life, if that diagnosis comes into our life, or the loss of a loved one comes into our life, all of a sudden our eyes are taken off of Jesus and it just focuses on that thing. And we say, if we do pray, then we say, God, get this thing out of my life. Get this thing out of my life. Get this thing out of my life. And that's all that we're consumed with. But if we're trusting in God, then this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be quiet and to be still and to put our face in the dust, and receive, it's to say, God, you are in control. You are my portion. And God, if you want me to have this thing that's being taken away from me, you will give it to me in due time. If you don't, then it's better that this thing is taken away. I'm going to remain steadfast in you. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I trust that all these things will be added to me as God sees fit to give them to. Me. This thing that's coming into my life that I don't want. God, you're in control. I don't want this thing. I'm going to be honest with you, God. I don't want this thing in my life. But God, if this is your plan to give me this thing, I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to remain steadfast because, God, I trust in you. If you want me to have this, this is what I'll have. This is the thorn in my flesh. And God, I'll just focus more on you because I see you clearly. You see this? I see you clearly. You're a God of steadfast love. You're a God of mercy. You're my portion, so I'll put my trust in you. And we do that because God is good. We do that because God is merciful. And even in the middle of a situation like this, we believe that God is working. All throughout this passage that we just read, in verses 25 through 39, it is a testament that God is working. And we can trust Him, because even in the middle of taking away good things that we like, or giving us bad things that we don't like, God is working. It says in verses 25, 26, and 27, look at the word with me, 25, 26, and 27, notice it says, The Lord is good. It is good. It is good. you notice he repeats that word over and over and over again? That word good is the word tov. Um, And the word tov is used all throughout Genesis chapter 1 when God is creating the world. When God is looking at this world of chaos and brokenness and he speaks light into existence. And then he forms things and puts things in order. As he's putting those things in order and as he's creating in the middle of chaos, he says it is good. It is good. It is good. It's a reminder here that even in the middle of suffering, God is creating. God is working. The same God who created creation out of the middle of chaos is creating in the middle of our pain. We see that he's disciplining his people here. The people of Israel are being disciplined. It says, it is good for a man, in verse 27, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. What's the picture there? He's not saying that everybody in Israel is young, but the idea of youth is that there's growth that needs to happen. You're not done yet. The great thing about being a youth is you have your entire life in front of you. And you're learning. You're being trained. And this yoke is being put on you because God is training you. He's equipping you. In the same way, it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines his children. Even in the middle of suffering. Even in the middle of persecution in Hebrews chapter 12. God is working to to shape us. To purify our faith according to 1 Peter chapter 1. Then we see that he's being just in, in verses thirty one. Look what he says in verse thirty one. He starts talking about how God is not God doesn't do this because he wants to do because he takes delight in doing it. Verse thirty three it says he does not afflict from his heart, which means that the final thing that he wants for his people is not pain. He doesn't enjoy slaying us. But he's working justice in the middle of it. Look what he says in verse 34. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. In other words, don't you see that there are those amongst us who have acted unjustly. And God is bringing them justice in the middle of this. So all this to say, God is working. Even in the middle of chaos, God is working. Maybe especially in the middle of chaos, God is working. I'm not going to act like I know exactly what God is doing. I know that there's a lot of questions I can't answer. I know that there's a lot of you who are facing situations that you really don't want to face right now. Not just in this time, but a lot of times in life. But I can promise you this. In every situation, God is working. And He's calling us to trust Him. And He's calling us to keep our eyes on Him. And He's calling us to humbly continue to be faithful to Him. And steadfast in Him, trusting that He's working. I heard a story just the other day. One of my friends who's a pastor in Mississippi, um, he said that he's had, this, he's had this ongoing relationship with this uh, woman in his community, not a romantic relationship, an evangelistic uh, relationship, where he and his wife have been trying to share the gospel with this woman over and over and over again. But it's been like hitting a, her heart. It's just been hard. Her heart for for months has just been hard against the gospel. But during this time of COVID nineteen, I don't know if there was sickness in her family or she started showing symptoms. But she was put into extreme quarantine. She couldn't talk to anybody. She couldn't be. Well, she could talk on the phone, but she couldn't be around anybody. Um, she had to be in a part of the house where none, none of the rest of her family could touch her. She was in extreme quarantine. And my friend said that in this time, uh, she started reaching out to him. And she started telling him about these questions she was having about life and death. And he began to perceive that she was being convicted of her sin, even especially because of everything that we're going through right now. And she was convicted of her need of a Savior. So my friend Corey shared the gospel with her. And just the other day, this week, for the first time in her life, she turned from her sin and she placed her faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of her life. Praise God that God is still working. He is working in the middle of our suffering and he's asking us to trust him. He's asking us to continue to look to him as our God to continue to wait on him and to continue to be steadfast in the work that he's given us to do because he is working. He's working in us and he's working around us. So it means to wait on God means to see God clearly. It means to trust God completely. And finally, it means to turn to God contritely. See God clearly. Trust God completely. Turn to God, contritely. Yes, I use that word because it started with C, just like the first two. But contrite, what does it mean to be contrite? To be contrite means to be broken. Again, it means to be honest about our sin and our need for God's forgiveness. Part of what he's telling Israel to do in chapter 3 is he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to confess their sinfulness to God. Now, this last point, I want to let you know, I'm speaking specifically to those who have never confessed their sin and placed placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a guest with us today listening in or whether you're a church member, but in your heart, you know, you've never realized your need for Jesus. You've never openly confessed your sinfulness to Jesus and you've never turned your life over to Jesus. I'm talking to you. Or if you're a church member who you, you're in, you've had a relationship with Jesus, but you're walking in sin right now and you're just trying to cover it up. You're living in rebellion. I want you to know, I'm talking to you right now. The author of Lamentations is talking to us. Look at what he says in verse 40. There's two steps to turning to God contritely. Two steps. Number one, we must honestly confess our sin. If we're going to turn to God contritely, we must honestly confess our sin. Look what it says in verse 40. He says, let us test and examine our ways. That means let's be honest. Let's search out our ways. You see, the people of Israel had spent a lot of time. Their way is the path that they're walking in. The people of Israel had been, spent a lot of time uh, giving excuses for their sin. They had given a lot of time uh, being, trying to justify their sin. Um, saying that this is what we need to do and covering up the excuses. But now what he's saying is, God, guys, let's be honest. Our ways are sinful, and we need to confess that. As a matter of fact, that's a lot of what he's talking about with his humility. In verses 25 through 39, he's talking about someone who's receiving this discipline as a punishment for their sins. And they don't need to fight against it. They need to openly confess, yeah, this is what we deserve. That's what he says in verse 39. He says, why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? You see, for Israel, as these nations are coming against them, if they were to be prideful, prideful, if they were to try to justify their sins, they would fight against these nations. But what the author of Lamentations is telling them to do is, no, you're receiving this because you deserve it. You need to submit to it. Just like uh, if someone is in a courtroom, someone has been convicted of a crime and they're brought into a courtroom, they've got two options, right? They can plead not guilty. And let's just say we know they did it. This person's guilty. And they're brought before the judge. They can plead not guilty. They can stand up and say, I didn't do this. This is not who I am. I didn't do this. I'm going to fight against this in front of a jury. Or they can openly confess, yes, this is what I've done. This is who I am. And they can throw themselves on the mercy of the judge. They can throw themselves on the mercy of the court. This is what the author of Lamentations is trying to get them to do. Humbly confess, yes, this is who I am. I am a sinner before God. I deserve to be punished by these armies. God, I cannot defend myself. My way is wicked. I need your mercy. Let me ask you a question. How does it strike you when I look at you? And, and, I, and, and what, if I called you a sinner, that probably wouldn't offend you. That's a churchy word, and we say this all the time. Everybody's a sinner, even though we don't understand really what that word means. But what if I looked at you and said, you are a wicked person. You are a bad person. And because of the life that you live, you deserve to be punished. You deserve to be separated from God forever. You don't deserve deserve one good thing from God. You don't deserve His mercy and you don't deserve His steadfast love. You deserve to be separated from Him forever. If God were to make this world what it needs to be, He would have to get rid of you because you're the problem in your sin. How does that strike you? To humbly confess our sin means to say, Yes, that's exactly who I am. Yes, that's exactly who I am. And it's to turn to God, not trying to defend ourselves, but turn to God honestly and say, yes, God, that's who I am. And I need your mercy. So it's to humbly confess our sin. And then number two, it's to wholeheartedly turn from our sin. So we humbly confess our sin and to turn to God contrivedly means we wholeheartedly turn from our sin. That's what he says in verse 40. Let's test and examine our ways and let's turn to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Let's worship Him. Our way has been going away from the Lord. Now let's turn from it and let's give our lives to the Lord. There is no right relationship with God without turning from our sin and turning to Him. This is what faith looks like in the Bible. Just think about this. Everything that I've said today, if we see God clearly, we see that He's a God of steadfast love, we see that He's a God of mercy, we believe that He wants to be good to His people, we believe that He's in control, enthroned over the heavens and the earth. We believe that everything He brings into our life, even if we don't like it, it's good and He's working out His plan in our life. If we believe that He's trustworthy, then how can we say we've encountered Him and not openly confessed our sin to Him and turned from our sin and given our life to Him? It's impossible to say we have a right relationship with God if we haven't turned our lives over to Him. And this is what I want you to see. Listen to me prayerfully through this little lens in my camera right now. I want us to see God. See God for who He is. Steadfast love never ceases. His mercy never ceases. His mercy is new every morning. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, you don't have to cover up your sin before God. No matter what way you are on, that way is not as good as a life that is lived in surrender to this God. Do you see Him? Has your faith resulted in surrender? That's what He's calling us to. He's not doing all of this to punish us. He wants to call us into a relationship with Him. Now just think about Jesus. This promise is not just to Israel. This promise, if you look at what He says here to Israel, we don't have time to read through the rest of the chapter, but if you read through the rest of the chapter, what you find is He promises, I will bring you out of the pit. I promise I will get rid of all of your enemies. I will undo all of this iniquity against you. I will be merciful to you if you will turn toward me. And he says the same thing to us. This is his desire. It is not his desire to throw us into hell. It is his desire to have a relationship with us. I think about this humble servant who's submitting himself to the will of God, and I can't help but think of Jesus. Jesus completely surrendered himself to the will of God. His God um, led him to the cross. He was silent. He didn't speak a word. He was honest with God. He told him, God, I don't want to do this in the garden. But then he was silent as God led him to the cross. He didn't argue. He went obediently, trusting in God. As they struck him, as they insulted him, he trusted himself to the will of God. As he surrendered himself to the will of God, we see the will of God put on display. What is the will of God? The will of God is to give his one and only Son, Jesus, to die on your behalf, to take the punishment that you deserve. He's a God of steadfast love and he wants to forgive you, he wants to redeem you. Jesus took your punishment on the cross, but then three days later he was raised from the dead, which means he is the Son of God. And if you turn to him, he has the authority to forgive you and he has the authority to change your life and you can give your life to him right now do you see him will you trust in him and will you give your life to him I want you to bow your head with me right now wherever you are and I'm going to ask you in your sin just to call out to God and say God yes I am a sinner I've tried to cover it up I've tried to pretend that I'm a bad person we say things all the time like yeah I know I'm a sinner but I'm not a bad person Would you openly confess to God right now, yes, God, I am a bad person, and I deserve to be separated from you forever, but I believe. I see you for who you are. God, you are a God of steadfast love. You're a God of mercy. Your mercy is new every morning. And God, I've been walking in the darkness, but you are ready to be merciful to me. So, God, I want to turn from my sin. I believe that Jesus took the punishment for my sin on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead and that he's Lord over heaven and earth. So I want to follow him with all of my life. In love, I want to give my life to him. You can do that right now. Call out to him. And the Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He will forgive you and change your life. Whether you an unbeliever, or whether you are a Christian who has just walked in rebelliously, openly confess your sin to God. God, we ask right now that you would hear the cry of those who are calling out to you, maybe for the first time. God, in this time of coronavirus and whatever we're going through, God, that you would see us and that you would love us and that you would show us just how merciful you are. God, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And that would lead people all over the world, uh, Lord, today and all who are are listening to me right here in Dryprong and in Louisiana. God, that we would see you for who you are. And that that would lead us to turn in our hearts to say, Jesus, you are our portion. You are our portion and our hope is in you. God, as we suffer right now, help us to trust in you. Help us to be steadfast. Help us to continue to trust that you're working in what you work. God bless your people. Amen and amen.